Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 24th of Thursday, 2022 in America, where I am. It's Thanksgiving, the least funny day of the year, I think, particularly in America, which as a nation tends to overeat dramatically. And it's the day of overeating. Um, I'm not sure if anyone quite appreciates the joke. Uh, and the headlines today are appropriately sad for America, where every day is generally sad. Three mass shootings yesterday. A Thanksgiving, according to the New York Times, which certainly doesn't have much of a sense of humor, with 14 empty chairs. Very sad. Last night, I saw the new Spielberg film. Spielberg being, I guess, the crown prince of American movies. Uh, he has a new book out, appropriately sad, called The Fablemans. It's actually a very good film, a very moving film, but a very sad film. The only slightly funny moment in the movie is when um, uh, 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 Spielberg's semi-fictional mother uh, wanted to have a laugh, so she got a pet monkey, and she explains to her kids, why'd you get it? She said, I needed a laugh. Well, on Thanksgiving, uh, we do indeed need a laugh, and who better? to give us that laugh, than Mr. Schumerology himself, Paul Barras, one of Britain's leading comics. Um, he has a, a wonderfully uh, funny podcast called, appropriately, Humorology. Uh, he has a website called Humorology. Um, he gives speeches about Humorology. And he has a new book out called Humorology. And Paul is joining us from the humorological capital of the world, London, South London. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew. With that kind of introduction, I can't wait to hear what I've got to say. Well, can't you cheer us up, Paul, on Thanksgiving? Everyone's miserable. No one wants to eat. We're all forced to eat. So what are we supposed to do on Thanksgiving? You've lived well, in America. I, I... I have lived in America, and I, I, what I what I recommend everybody do is watch the Monty Python film where Mr. Creosote um, has <laughs> one more wafer-thin mint. I mean, that, that might put them off eating too much. And then, of course, Mr. Creosote explodes. He does. Well, you've lived, we, we were talking before we went live, Paul, we went broadcast everything we said because some of it will result in me losing my job and probably going to jail but um <laughs> you've lived in america you're you're a brit and, and and british people tend to be associated with humor um what's your sense of america's ability to laugh does it need to laugh a little bit more you you've been a stand-up comic in america yeah, well, music and comedy in America. I worked all the clubs, like everything from Catch a Rising Star to, to um, the improv to Caroline's. And actually, there are people with a great sense of humor in America. But what but they're all in jail, Paul, aren't they? <laughs> well, well, actually, that's a good point. Now, uh, this is where we uh, we actually get into real trouble is when people are put into literal Twitter jail for making a joke. So, you know, I, I, I worry about the world in the sense of like, we used to be able to hold up a mirror to people who were racist or sexist, 
But even if you now have a character in a sitcom who says something racist or sexist, in order to be shown up for uh, the bigot they are, people will pile on now and say, you can't say that. And suddenly all our comedy history would have fallen apart. Uh, you know, we had to, in the UK, which was translated into America, we had till death us do part. Yeah, I've gone. I used to play uh, tennis when I was growing up with Warren Mitchell. So uh, oh, I know did that. you really? Yeah, what a lovely was, uh, man. Yeah, he was a lovely man. It wasn't so lovely until Death Us Do Part, but he was very funny. No, but he was, well, there you have a, a Jewish man playing the most bigoted man in the world. But always, I mean, that became, if for our American listeners, that became all in the family with Archie Bunker. Yeah, well, what know. was first? Was it? it was, uh, no, it was the UK version was oh. first written by Johnny Spate, who was a, a, a genius writer. And uh, funny thing is, I actually uh, met Warren Mitchell a few times because he worked with uh, a, a, a man called William G. Stewart, who was like a second father to me in television. And so uh, I met him. He was a very, very considered. Uh, yeah, and uh, in until death us to part, he was a West Ham fan. But in in real life, he was he was a yid. He was a Spurs boy. So um, some things. Uh, some things are, are uh, eternal, Paul. Um, and of course, the thing about Till Death Us Do Part is that the father-in-law was called Booth and he has some political significance too, you might remind us. I do know, because uh, he was the brother of, or the father, no, the father. of father, father, right, uh, rather, of Cherie Blair, who is Tony Blair's wife. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if Tony Blair had much of a, a, a um, sense of humor people laughed at him i'm not sure if they laughed with him you mentioned politics paul we did a show a couple of years ago actually earlier this year with nick marks who he has a new book out about um how conservatives in america make humor work for them as you suggest all, all humor for better or worse these days is political are conservatives funnier than liberals do you think <sighs> I think it's very hard because on the Humorology podcast, we've had people like Lord William Hague, who used to run the Conservative Party in the UK. Another Spurs um, boy, yeah? William Hague. Yeah, yeah. They're I mean, everywhere, Paul. We're, we're ubiquitous. I saw, I saw the rider, which just said, only mention uh, Spurs fans, uh, which means that that's all I'm going to do. Um, Unfortunately, the other person is, uh, who I was going to mention is Alistair Campbell, who is a Burnley fan, mm. who we've also had on the podcast. And actually, uh, because he was, uh, Alistair Campbell was Tony Blair's right-hand man, they used to say that actually the only person Tony Blair feared at Prime Minister's questions was William Hague, because he did have a beautifully cutting sense of humour. Yeah. And, and actually, in the cut and thrust of the commons, that can be very, very useful. Because if you can get your own side to laugh, but also the other side to laugh, what that happens, that cuts away the power from people. But I prefer using humorology to create a competitive advantage in another way. In, in, to, to, it's a very complex challenging world Andrew so I think just it evens things out 
because if you can laugh with people, you can probably relate to them. And politically, I think the ability to laugh something off when, you know, somebody doesn't agree with us politically adds to our resilience and, and gives us a, probably a common ground whereby we can go, okay, we're all ridiculous, but at least we can laugh together. Yeah, and we did a show with a, another conservative, Rick Keller. He's a former congressman from Florida, and he has a new book out called Chase the Bears, Little Things to Achieve Big Dreams, which isn't a very funny title, but he does stress the value of self-deprecating humor. Um, uh, and he was pretty funny. Are, are there, is that the argument, the core argument in humorology that we should all be a little bit more self-deprecating we shouldn't take ourselves quite as seriously yes it is one of the core arguments i can't get out of my head that you're you're in san francisco and uh where chase the bears would mean something completely different uh what is that no i don't know the underground of you you need to explain that Paul. Oh, what no, does it mean? It, uh, the subculture the gay subculture big burly men are called bears Ah, well, I just live above the Castro, so I'll have to go and chase some bears myself this afternoon. <laughs> no. um, but going back to your question, oh, a sense of humour and, and the core tenant of humorology is a sense of humour does so much for you, it increases your mental resilience, it makes you more likeable, and these two things together... Does it? Help. I mean, sometimes I think... Uh, the more jokes I make, the less friends I have. Do you have a lot of friends? I'm Maybe my jokes say, aren't very good. Well, but uh, are your jokes punching up or punching down? I think that I generally use humour to insult people, so maybe that's why I don't have any friends. <laughs> no, but insulting is one, uh, one way of doing humour, but generally humour... Uh, actually, research shows us that even leaders with a meagre sense of humour are viewed as 27% more motivating. You're a leader, and that makes them more admired. Uh, and teams uh, are 15% more engaged uh, and twice as likely to solve some kind of creative challenge. Right, now actually what Keller said, and he's a conservative, is one of the people he used in to, to make his argument was uh, Barack Obama, who I don't think politically he was on the same page as, but he acknowledged that Obama was able to make fun of himself. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, I think that's what gave him that extra something. I, Funnily enough, in lectures and when I do keynotes, I talk about Obama's uh, all-round ability because everything, I think, fitted together. I think that he had that congruence, if you like, whereby the words were matched by the sound of his voice and the, then the actions and the body language together, but also that fundamental thing whereby he was able to take the rise out of himself. And kind of what that does, essentially from a humorology point of view, is it pricks your own bubble of pomposity. Mm. So, so it kind of unnerves people or, or, or disarms is probably a better way. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that he has a particularly prickly and honest wife, Michelle Obama, that whether or not he takes himself seriously, she never allowed him to. So she always reminded 
him of his absurdity and he was willing to acknowledge them. Yeah, but I think it takes a big man to acknowledge uh, their absurdity. I mean, really, can we all go through life being so pompous as to think that we are God's gift? Really, we, we need to sort of understand that, that we are flawed human beings, if you like, and we all have flaws. And if you can't laugh at yourself, I think it's much harder to actually bond with people and connect with people. Yeah, and to be fair, some people suggest I'm not always very fair to Americans, which I think is probably fair. Um, your book comes with a title that suggests a great American humanist, uh, one of the Marx brothers, Groucho Marx. So what is it about Groucho Marx that made him so funny, Paul? Well, one thing, timing. I timing. Mean, I was going to talk about timing. I think humor is is mostly, I mean, I don't know, 18, 90% timing. Well, I think you're right. And, and one of the things we explore in the book and on the podcast is the fact that can you create the timing? And I think all the great people I've interviewed about humor, the one thing they tend to agree on is you may be able to make people better, but you can't actually instill that instinct of timing. You have to hear the funny because you can't go right that go after three wait three beats and then do the line because it doesn't work like that it's an instinct you hear where the comedy drops and and that's what uh, is the difference that makes a difference between somebody who has a great sense of humor and somebody who is just reasonably funny is they hear the laugh they hear, and by the way, when I say hear the laugh, and we talked about Groucho Marx, you also, you, you have the ability to show where the laugh goes. What Groucho did is he used to bring the laugh in with his body language as well. Yeah, well, he looked funny. I mean, you couldn't, I mean, just look at him, looking at him. How, how important is appearance, Paul? Um, you don't look that funny, but you're a funny man. <laughs> You don't have a little moustache. You look like a, a corporate guy. You could be a, a vice president of marketing or human relations. Well, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment, but I'm, I'm sure it was meant. Well, as it meant as a compliment in the sense that you, you look respectable, <laughs> but you're also funny. Well, yeah, but do you know what? My first act, Morris Minor and the Majors, uh, we had a, a, a couple of big hits. And one of the things that uh, I did, we all did, fun enough, was pencil on moustaches because moustaches were quite funny. And we did it for no apparent reason. We just penciled on the moustache. And so yeah. it, it, it actually, and you can look funny just by changing the way yeah, you Yeah, I wonder, we're in the middle of a, a World Cup where there unfortunately is not enough humor. The German team got into trouble or maybe didn't get into trouble for putting their hands over their mouths in, in, in defiance of, uh, Qatari law. I wonder if it would have been a better strategy for all of them to paint little moustaches on themselves. Maybe Harry Kane can do that tomorrow in the match against America. Actually, I think that that what's going to happen is they are going to uh, what they don't understand is what's creativity is involved. People will find a funny way to circumnavigate the rules. I don't know if you heard, but 
the Welsh uh, fans were stopped, and there was a video of it online, from wearing rainbow hats yeah. to go into the ground. And you kind of go, well, the Qataris are not doing themselves a favour by not just having a sense of humour about it and allowing it to happen. If you try and close that down, what happens is it rises in another way. People are creative and humour, the, the funnier they make it. I mean, I think I'm waiting for uh, them. There's a, a very funny comedian who's Iranian uh, extraction called Omar Jalili. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, but he sounds funny. Jalili. <laughs> he is very funny. I mean, you should listen to him on the Humorology podcast or read uh, some of his quotes in the book. He's brilliant. But, of course, Iran is having a, a lot of uh, issues now uh, with the thing. And he said what he wanted people to do was to do the signs they're doing in the streets naturally now, where people are imagining that they've got hair there and cutting it off. Now, if a footballer did that, it would be very significant. But it's also kind of lighthearted way of showing up what's going on. And I think, remember that totalitarian regimes, the first thing they do is get rid of humour and dissent. Right. We had, uh, you, you, you couldn't be more correct, I think, Paul. We, we had uh, Michael Zantowski on the show three years ago. Um, he was very much involved in the Czech rising against the, the Soviets in 1967 and then became uh, Vaclav Havel's right-hand man. He talked to me about how humor is the best antidote to tyranny. And of course, Havel was probably the funniest statesman of the 20th century. He had the best sense of humor of all, and he certainly appreciated it in others. The Czechs, I think, as a nation are pretty funny. They've always used it as resistance against certainly uh, foreign invaders, the Germans and then the Russians. Well, yeah, but my father was a refugee from Hungary in 1956. So um, we, in our family, we knew quite a lot about the power of humour to get you through situations like that. And, if, uh, you know, if you talk to um, uh, people like John Sweeney, who is uh, an investigative reporter who is currently in Ukraine, he said he's been in 60 uprisings and wars over his uh, career as a journalist. And he said, sometimes that is the only way to survive. You know, there is a reason that when people are in dire straits, they, the only thing that, that they can't control is the humor, the laughing at it. In apartheid in, in South Africa, they closed down all the, the theatres and the small clubs where people were gathering to, to do humour because they were threatened by it. And I think that's what the, the power of humour is, that if you can laugh at something, it suddenly diminishes its power. And, and what all kinds of um, the, the, theocracies hate is any diminishment of that power. And humour... Is an extraordinary weapon in that sense. Yeah, and it's interesting. Your your book is mostly about the value of humor at work. You've written about the power of humor at work. In terms of 
theocracies, most of us don't live in Qatar, for better or worse, for better from my point of view, or in Putin's Russia or in Soviet Russia, but we all work, or many of us work in corporations. Is the equivalent of the theocracy in the West these days, Paul, um, corporations? And is that why humor is so valuable at work? Because everyone takes it so seriously, um, particularly bosses. Yeah, I, th I think that it, it has become a, a people's only way out. I mean, because the average person spends well over 3,500, 4,000 days at work during their lifetime, which is a huge amount of time. And presumably humour or a sense of humour comes in handy on at least a few of those days because a well-developed sense of humour would be your most valuable defence against, as you say, the trials and tribulations of the world. And it's your only way out when people are trying to oppress you. And I think that there is a lot more big corporations um, who are trying to take away rights and trying to do that. So maybe there will be an uprising in humour and everyone, if you make a bad joke in a company, you get fired for one kind of ism or another. Isn't that one of the problems that everyone feels so, so controlled that they keep their head down, they do their work and they go home and God knows what they're thinking, but they certainly are, don't articulate that in the office. Yeah, I, there's a lot of argument around this stuff. And we talk about this stuff uh, a lot about what, you know, I have. People I know going, you can't say anything anymore, which I don't think is true. I well, we can, just... Paul, because I got my own show, so I can say anything I want. You, you, yeah. You've built a brand around humour. So if you say something a little off key, you can say, well, I'm a humorologist. That's what I mean. <laughs> business well, yeah, but I think that people can do it. I think you just have to get enough rapport with people in order to do it. I, I think you have to build enough trust. And I think people... Yeah, trust is important. Things. Trust and humour is, is, is an important uh, subject, I think. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that you can... If we talk in terms of business and we talk in terms of politics, uh, I don't think you can actually do humour properly until people trust you. My background is, you know, 10 years of working at the comedy store and, and in America at all the clubs there. And every comedian knows that until the audience trusts you, you can go, your act can go down the pan, can go down the toilet, because they have to understand that it's coming from a place. Funnily enough, I've, I've literally just come back from Norway and somebody in the audience said... Was that yeah. a joke, Paul? I literally <laughs> just came back from Norway. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I'm not that good. Uh, no, but somebody was asking, can you, can you make a joke about anything? And I said, you can, but not until you have the trust of the room, whereby they know that you're... Here's a word that we don't use much anymore, teasing, chiding, playing. Yeah. All those words that actually are part of social uh, inclusion, so part of social bonding. And I'm passionate 
that we need to bring that back. Because I think those, when I went to school, I went uh, to a big comprehensive school, a state school with 2,000 boys. And we had people from every nation there. But you had to, as we say in England, be able to take the piss out of yourself before you took, took the piss out of somebody else. You How far should that go, though, Paul? We, we did a show on Kerry Grant, one of Britain's great uh, c comedic exports to the United States. Uh, Edward Delaney has written a wonderful book about him called The Acrobat. And the funniest joke of all, which isn't really very funny for Kerry Grant, um, was that he never really existed. His best joke was uh, he, he wasn't Kerry Grant any more than anyone else. How far do we go in terms of maintaining a sense of the self? You know, there's this cliche that comedians are often very sad people, very troubled people. Should, I mean, for aspiring comics and for yourself, do we need to still maintain a sense of the self? Uh, Grant's life wasn't particularly happy, but he was a great comedian. You see, I, all these things, you know, I'm sure there are very many miserable plumbers. They're just not out there doing it. But, but, but society likes those two degrees, don't they? I, he's up here when he's on stage, but he's down here when he does that. Nobody says that uh, about a butcher. You know, he, he, he was happy at the butcher's shop, but then when he went home, he was miserable. It doesn't have that same thing. And, and the whole, you know, clown thing of, you know, the sad man inside. I'm not sure it's completely true. Mm. I, think, I think that what comedians, what people mistake with comedians is comedy is a very serious business. Yes. Because in order to get it right, you have to be very accurate. Now, you know, because from, from doing what you do, you have to get things right. So there's an element of seriousness about that. And that's the bit that I don't think people want to address is the fact that in order to do comedy well, you have to kind of think about it in quite a deep way. And I would say I've never met a, a non-intelligent comedian. I've met people I don't agree with politically who are comedians. What about Benny Hill? Was he intelligent? Yes, actually, Benny was. Benny was a great writer, funny enough. Benny, you know, I have a, 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 a female friend uh, called Denise Kelly, who actually was one of Hill's angels, as they were called. Mm. And uh, she said he was a, a, a very, very thoughtful man who took it very, very seriously. That was a character. It was the, the funny fat man who was jolly and, you know, I'm not sure they could even put... Benny Hill on television anymore because it, it was he wouldn't fit right <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it was completely by today's standards politically incorrect yeah I joke that he had a son called Biggie Hill who was a famous rapper but no one seems to believe me um <laughs> coming back to this issue of trust and getting the audience on, on your side it seems to me Paul to be a, a kind of a chicken and egg on the one hand, the, the great comics bring 
an audience into their world, into their language, gets them to trust it. But the only way you do that is through the language itself. So how does it work? Well, then we're into the elements which we slightly touched on earlier on with Groucho Marx. We're into the body language. We're into, uh, does this person look like somebody who is empathetic? And I listened to your uh, great podcast, funnily enough, flying back from Norway, um, uh, about the power of empathy. Oh, um, not a funny subject, unfortunately. No, but I think empathy is a, a core component of humorology. Yeah, I agree. If you haven't got that, then you haven't people got people on side, and therefore you haven't got their trust. And, yeah. And trust is the thing. Now, I think you could be empathetic without being humorous, but I don't think you can be humorous without being slightly empathetic, even with you know, you you um, were self-deprecating that you think you're you're you have a rude sense of humor. I just think you have a sharp sense of humor. You've got a sharp mind. Well, you, you tell like all the girls that, Paul. That's why you have so many girlfriends. You think in America you've got to be particularly sharp um, to be a good because there's so much to make fun of. Um, well, uh, Lenny Bruce course, is probably the the greatest of one of the greatest of 20th century American humorists, he was particularly sharp. I mean, can you be too sharp? Can you go over the top? Well, I think the point of comedy is that you don't know you've gone over the top until you've gone over the top. And I, th I would say that that's a core component of uh, being a comedian, is to push the boundaries. And I always- Did Bruce do it? Did you like, do you like Lenny Bruce? Yeah, no, I, 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 he was of his time, but actually now Lenny Bruce would have had to adapt his act to be able to do it. And yeah. everybody is of their time. I mean, I, I love Steve Martin, for instance. And, you know, but and by the way, everybody should uh, read his book, Born Standing Up, if you haven't. I think it's one of the greatest uh, autobiographies ever. And truly truly funny at its core and people have funny bones and i the funny thing about that is that in the uk they give people honors for yeah. and most of the time they give people honors for being great actors serious actors who do shakespeare comedy as every actor will tell you is much more difficult but very rarely do they give a comedian a knighthood. So Michael Caine? Michael Caine's not really a comedian. Is yeah, he? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. He's, Who's he's your favourite then? In terms of who should have a knighthood in Britain that doesn't? John Cleese? Uh, he's yeah, not John very Cleese. funny anymore. He's become rather sour. Well, I, unfortunately, John John has a, a very expensive habit of, of, of marrying, so he's he, he's having to um, uh, keep going, and I don't think he wants to keep going at the rate he does. But I think he's been very honest about it that he has to keep doing these shows to pay the alimony. Um, so, um, but I I still think John is funny. I think he is just grumpy with it now and really hates the fact that 
that he thinks political correctness has gone too far. And so he therefore wants to be the grumpy old man who is, is throwing it back in everybody's face. Um, now, sometimes that can be a bit wearing, I get it. But I went to see the last gig that Monty Python ever did at the O2. And I took my son who was 11 at the time and my son laughed uproariously along with me. So there is still, he is still funny and the Pythons are still funny. I don't think you lose funny. I, I just think that maybe you get out of kilter with what with public sensibilities at the time. Well, Britain is, and, and you're obviously British and so am I, and we're having this hopefully funny conversation about humor. Is there something about Britain that brings out humorists, comedians, and laughter? Is it something to do with the absurdity of the country? There's a piece in the New York Times to the, a couple of days ago about uh, UK starting to look at Brexit with what they call regret. Surprise, surprise. Uh, another piece on CBS. You've had perhaps the most absurd chapter recently politically with Liz Truss, who could have walked out of a Monty Python skit. What is it about Britain that makes it so funny and in its ability to, to laugh at itself? And can that go over the top? Is the, perhaps the problem with Britain that it doesn't take anything seriously, which is why it's in such a shitty state at the moment? Well, well, it should have laughed at Brexit more. I'll agree with you on that because, uh, you know... Sadly, though, I mean, it's so absurd to... <laughs> well, well, then we get into the whole class system in Britain, which, right. um, which makes uh, humour um, very pointed, if you like, if you like. But the trouble is with British people is they will laugh at the tops, the, at the toffs, or uh, the upper classes, but they will generally doff their cap and touch their forelock and do what they're told, which is kind of what happened with Brexit. We're also with Brexit, we have to be honest that the, uh, the, the leave wing told a better story. The remain wing didn't tell a good story. And Had didn't laugh. Was, I mean, Boris Johnson may not like him, but he has a good sense of humour. Well, and that, I mean, that was, that was what took it over the edge, was you suddenly had somebody there who had a catchphrase and who people naturally warmed to. Now, I think they're, they're, they're thinking again about that now, but he was, and everybody, even people politically who hate him, will acknowledge that he has a sense of humour. Um, and that is a weapon in the wrong hands, but it's so compelling. And it, there you've just given the best reason for humorology is you can use it to change people's minds. Now we have to understand that the other side needs to get a sense of humor. And one of the problems they're having uh, with the Labour Party is people are saying, and I'm not saying this, but uh, that Keir Starmer, who is the head of the Labour Party for our international leaders, uh, is boring. Now, one of the reasons is I'm told by people who I know who know him that he's a great bloke, but he's too guarded in interviews because now the press jumps on you. 
And that's what makes it difficult. We're going back to our conversation. It makes it difficult to have a sense of humour and make a light-hearted remark because the, the press will jump all over it and say, you know, he made a joke and he is now bigoted or he is now. So what happens with uh, politicians and how um, uh, Boris Johnson broke the mould and to an extent Trump broke, broke the mould was by not caring and just going for it. And I think that humorology wise just seemed so refreshing to people that they just grabbed onto the first thing and thought, yeah, we've finally got somebody who isn't po-faced, somebody who can uh, laugh at themselves in the, the, the case of Boris Johnson. And we like that. So now it's incumbent on other people to use it in different ways. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to bring up Trump because he's so boring, but since you brought him up, I think it's interesting that Trump can be quite funny publicly, but privately you have to assume that he's incapable of humor because he's such a, a sort of psychotic egoist. And in contrast, Hillary Clinton was profoundly unfunny in public, a terrible politician, which is why she lost the election to him. And yet I've never met the woman, but you always read that she has a, a great sense of humor. So the challenge is how to how to, I guess, give somebody like Hillary Clinton the confidence to be herself in public and tell jokes and be relaxed. Maybe she should have a drink before she goes on stage next time. Well, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, funny enough, uh, Lord William Hague, who was on the podcast, was talking uh, about Hillary Clinton's uh, warmth and great sense of humour, and they used to go to various conferences around the world and they'd always go out to dinner and laugh at what had happened at the conference. And, and if you listen to his interview on the Humorology podcast, you'll hear how much affection you're a good, You're a good self-promoter, Paul. Well, let's remind <laughs> everyone they need it. If, I mean, you've got to listen to my podcast first, but if you've got a second one, listen to Paul's Humorology podcast, especially the one with Lord William Hague, who is a big Spurs fan, so that's a second reason to listen. <laughs> no, but I think it's important. You made the point about Trump. I, I don't think that, I think Trump was perceived as different and having a sense of humor. I think that it, he doesn't have a good sense of humor because as we spoke about earlier on, in order to have a good sense of humor, you have to find yourself at least mildly amusing. You have to realize that you are slightly ridiculous and he doesn't seem to have any semblance of of actually looking at himself and realizing that he is a, a funny to other people but not in the way he would like to think well let's and uh, let's give you another opportunity to talk about the book uh, humorology the serious business of humor at work how can we be funnier at work paul what does your book suggest both as um, bosses and as people who are told what to do? How can we reintroduce humour into the workplace? Because it's essential. We did a show uh, last year with Sarah Jaffe, uh, wonderfully entitled, Work Won't Love You Back. She may be right, but work could love us back if the workplace was a bit funnier. Well, I mean, for a workplace, it's important to remember uh, that I mean, I, I talk about putting the punchline back into your bottom line, because I think the only way we're going to persuade 
these big companies and these conglomerates to do it is if they realize that there is actually a, a bottom line uh, for this, whereby if you look at what keeps people healthy over a lifetime, you know, of course there's luck and there's genetics and there's access to viruses, etc. But actually, the healthiest people uh, have the strongest relationships uh, and over the course of their lifetime, it's built on love and compassion and humor. So if you think about that in terms of work, if people are coming to work and going, I had fun today, guess what? They're going to be more creative. They are going to have less sick days. They're going to be more resilient and they're going to want to do the best for the company. All the research tells us that people don't actually do more necessarily when they're given a bump in their salary. They will do more if they feel valued. One of the things that humor does in the broadest sense is bring people in, bond people, make them feel valued. And laughter and playfulness, I think, are key skills for the survivor personality. And if you want your business to survive and your people in your business to survive, allow humor to flourish.